Welcome to this week's episode of Down Home with Paul, reading a number of Paul Harvey stories in a Saturday news brief too. Now, the rest of the story. The rest of the story. For one reason alone, shy little Carlos regretted his family's moving to the tiny town of Miami, Arizona. That reason was the kid next door. The boy's name was Bobby. He was a full-blooded Native American, same age as Carlos, same grammar school class, but a lot bigger. Now, Carlos was himself half Irish, half Cherokee. But apparently that wasn't good enough for Bobby, so every day after school he would chase Carlos home. Most days he would catch him and beat him up. But this is the rest of the story. Right next door to the cottages where Carlos and Bobby lived was a gas station. The owner's name was Jack, and every day Jack would stand there and he'd, he'd watch this sad little scenario recur. The bully chasing the smaller boy, and then catching him, and then pounding him day after day. Now Jack may have known that Carlos's father was an alcoholic, was mostly oblivious to his son's problems. But one day Jack decided it was time to butt in, so he went to Carlos's mother and he told her, please stay in the house today and do not interfere. And she agreed. And sure enough, right on schedule, little Carlos came running past the gas station toward his house. Bobby the bully was not yet in sight, but Jack the gas station man stopped Carlos and he said, I'd like to have a word with you. Politely but urgently, the little boy explained that he must not stop now. He had to go inside right away because Bobby was chasing him and he would be here at any minute. Jack said, you're not going anywhere. You're going to stand up for yourself and fight this boy right now. But Bobby was too big, Carlos pleaded. Jack wouldn't listen. He said, you're not going to run away anymore. And the more he encouraged Carlos, the braver the little boy became so brave that when Bobby the bully arrived, Carlos actually jumped him and wrestled the bully to the ground. And it was but a brief tussle at the conclusion of which Bobby the bully cried, I give, I give. And as Jack the service station man had known in his heart from the start, Bobby would never chase Carlos again. In fact, perhaps predictably, they became friends. Now I know this sounds like one of the many mountainous molehills of which childhood is comprised, an insignificant episode in the life of a couple of greater stories, but for Carlos it was ultimately significant. And even more, the time he turned around and stood his ground made him, well, made him whatever he was to be forever after. For you would never have heard of that little boy who let a bully get the best of him, were it not for the man he became, world middleweight karate champion from 1968 to 1974, and the star of such movie box office knockouts as A Force of One, Delta Force, Code of Silence. But now whenever you hear his name, you will picture a scared little boy trying to outrun a bully and a concerned stranger who put an end to the running of Carlos Ray Norris, whom the world has come to respect as Chuck Norris. Now you know the rest of the story. If you grew up on a diet of cow country music and hillbilly ballads, then you're familiar with the name Lonzo Green. Great country singer. 
but he was a stranger in town that summer. He'd brought his wife and a couple of youngsters all the way from Cherry Valley, Arkansas, to visit relatives in Tennessee. But as I say, he was a stranger in town. He was unaccustomed to the local customs and to the local taboos. So Lonzo was a little surprised to learn that a friend of his young nephew, under no circumstances, was to be allowed into the house. His teenage nephew, Jimmy, had proudly, excitedly spread the word around school that Uncle Lonzo, the musician, had come to town and he was staying with them right there in their apartment on Lauderdale Court. And naturally, this impressed Jimmy's young friends, especially one, a quiet, dark-haired boy of 15. Jimmy came home that day. He told Lonzo about the boy, how he had his own guitar, but he didn't know how to tune it. And if Lonzo would just tune the guitar for him, I, the boy, would be so grateful. Lonzo said he'd be happy to oblige, he asked Jimmy, when his friend could come with his guitar. And then uh, Jimmy's eager smile faded. His friend could come by that afternoon, but Mom and Dad had made it a firm rule that the boy was not to be allowed inside. He was as they said in those days, from the wrong side of the tracks. They had explained, well, some folks called him white trash. Maybe he could meet Lonzo outside, but he was not permitted in the house. Lonzo did not quite understand, but he nodded. He said nothing. A couple of hours later, he walked out into the sunlight and waited. And in a minute or two, the figure appeared at the end of the lane, a boy with a dark hair and a battered guitar slung across his back. And as the boy walked closer, Lonzo studied the sensitive features, the timid sidewise glances at this, this better neighborhood. The sting of self-consciousness was apparent. Then he noticed that the boy's guitar, obviously inexpensive, doubtless secondhand, was tethered by a piece of string. Well, they met at the curb. They shook hands. The youngster gave a... Shy, slight smile. And there at the curbside, they sat down, right on the curb. And Lonzo took the instrument from the boy. Nobody had ever shown him how to tune his guitar, ever. With a soft, polite, southern drawl, the lad said, No, sir, nobody ever did. And then Lonzo demonstrated. He placed his fingers in the proper frets, and the boy watched intently. And after the guitar was tuned, he thanked Lonzo. He began to get up from the curb, but Lonzo would not let him leave. For he, Lonzo, had tasted poverty back in Arkansas in his own youth. And he had known the other side of the neighborhood barrier, which separated acceptable from unacceptable people. How such a little kindness from the right person would have meant back then. So Lonzo asked this dark-haired boy to stay a little while longer, and the hesitant smile now broke into a broad grin. And with the little lad's inexpensive guitar, Lonzo played and sang one familiar hill country ballad after another, after another, and shortly the haunting reticence in the boy's eyes was gone, replaced by the joy of the music. Cars were streaming past them. The shadows of late afternoon grew long. After Lonzo had taught the boy to play a few chords on the guitar, the youngster thanked him again and was on his way. He was not invited inside. Not then. Lonzo Green would never meet him again. But the boy had left his company with a warm memory, a memory that he would carry throughout his remarkable, radical change in his own life, because someday you would invite that dark-haired boy from the wrong side of town into your home. And when he crossed those tracks for good, he brought with him his guitar, and he brought the soft, 
polite drawl and hesitant smile. That was many summers, 33 motion pictures, millions of records, and a lifetime ago. And if there is a happy ending mixed in with our own bittersweet memories, it is that the boy was never, ever after unwelcome again. That young fellow who once upon a time was not allowed inside was Elvis Presley. Now you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story. It was while on a business trip that Milton saw the tiny toy helicopter in the shop window. The paper tag on which the price was hand-inscribed said 50 cents, but there was something about that clever little plaything that made it especially worthwhile. It could fly, or at least so Milton surmised, noticing the attachment of rubber bands to its uncomplicated mechanism. Milton walked inside the shop. 50 cents for the little helicopter, he said to the clerk. Well, yes, the clerk answered, but you understand that it's a kit. It has to be put together. Oh, that was particularly delightful, Milton exclaimed, and then he explained. He'd once been a school teacher, and from this experience, he had retained some very specific ideas about education. The real challenge he happily expounded is winning a pupil's interest. Once he is fascinated with something, it would be impossible to prevent him from learning about it. I take it you have children of your own, said the clerk. Oh, yes, Milton answered, grammar school age. He and his wife had encouraged them to read and ask questions and to think for themselves from the time they were quite small. And they liked nothing better than to build a little helicopter and watch it fly. Milton had always believed in the power of educational toys to stimulate intellect, and this particular one was among the best that he had ever seen. And which model would you like, the clerk asked. What were his choices, Milton wanted to know. Oh, my goodness, answered the clerk. There's one that rises to a height of 50 feet or so and then falls without harming itself. There's one that shoots upward about as high, but then glides gently back to earth. There's one that ascends 25 feet and hovers in midair for, for as long as half a minute. Well, Milton purchased the model that seemed most intriguing, and he hurried home to Cedar Rapids, Iowa that afternoon, thoroughly pleased with himself for having discovered such a gift, and he was quite eager to present it. What did you bring us, Daddy? That was the familiar greeting at the door. What did you bring us, Daddy? And from behind his back, Milton, grinning broadly, produced this neatly wrapped toy. Well, the boys tore off the wrapping like frenzied predators. Do you like it, Milton asked hopefully. My, how they liked it. Well, after carefully assembling the little helicopter, they wound up its rubber band motor again, and again, and again, indoors that night, watching it rise and bob against the ceiling, outdoors the next morning, cheering as it soared to dizzying heights, as high as a tree, and then sailed back to them in lazy circles. Milton, convinced as he was of his educational theories, could never have imagined how correct he had been this once. For you see, his two youngest sons were then ages 11 and 7, and they would remember all of the rest of their days. That one day in the autumn of 1878, when their father brought them a little helicopter toy, a 50-cent plaything, ostensibly, and yet a plaything which was to awaken in them a passion that changed their lives forever after, and our lives as well. You'd never met the educator-turned-minister, who, returning from a trip on church business, bestowed a tiny yet enormous gift to his boys, just an interested father named Milton Wright, all of your life you've known his sons, Wilbur and Orville. Only now you know the rest of the
Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. A shipwreck is old enough. Part or all of the sunken vessel may be buried in silt beneath the seabed. In such cases, marine archaeologists bring out the big guns. Ground-penetrating radar, which can see what lies below below. And sometimes the results are astounding. I want you to meet David Fasshold and Ron Wyatt. David is an American shipwreck specialist. Ron is an archaeologist. Together they stand on the verge of uncloaking a mystery that has fascinated yet utterly frustrated previous investigators. And the key to discovering the fate of this particular sunken ship is subsurface radar. Their team of explorers, breathless with anticipation, studies the radar surveys of the site. Look and excited, somebody says, pointing to an area. It's about 82 feet from the stern where they can see the remains of the ship, where the radar image is so crystal clear down there that they can count the floorboards on the deck between the bulkheads. For our right now, high-tech times comprise a golden age of discovery. For centuries, in many instances, the sea has guarded her ill-gotten gain, but diver explorers, assisted by the subtlest sensing equipment, are taking back riches and precious remnants of history that have eluded their seekers in generations past. In the South China Sea, for example, shipwrecks a thousand years old are currently yielding tons of artifacts. Ceramic stoneware, earthenware, bowls and plates and bronze mirrors and containers, gold and silver jewelry, ingots and coins, the envy of museums throughout the world. Now, until recently, the oldest recorded shipwreck found by adventurer Peter Throckmorton near Cape Galadonia, dated back to the Bronze Age, 1,400 years before Christ. But the remains of the vessel investigated by David Fasshold and his team, they are older still. For as the astonished scientists poured over the data from ground-penetrating radar in 1994, field archaeologist Ron Wyatt made an extraordinary discovery of his own. Huge stones near the site, stones with holes hand-carved near the ends, drogue stones they were called as ancient mariners dragged them behind the ships for greater stability in high seas. Now carbon dating is not complete, excavation has barely begun, but Saleh Baratuntan, chief geologist at Ataturk University, believes that incredible man-made vessel now fossilized maybe tens of thousands of years old. And more is precisely what it appears to be. The ship's measurements are close enough. 558 feet by 148 feet, roughly what ancient texts suggest. And yes, I do mean to say that the final resting place of that formidable vessel at an inexplicable altitude of some seven and a half thousand feet in the mountains near the bone-dry border of Turkey and Iran further suggests a fantastic voyage, which until now many believe never happened. A mission of survival made possible by an enormous craft which was at the very least ahead of its maritime 
Since you were small, you have heard it called Noah's Ark. Well, now you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story. May 25, 1951, he made his major league baseball debut. That day, he was five times at bat, no hits. The next day, he was three times at bat, no hits. The day after that, he was four times at bat, again, no hits. And the days rolled by, and the most the hapless rookie could muster was one hit in 26 times at bat. So you'll understand why after the most recent of those humiliating games, the rookie went into the locker room, he sat down in front of his locker, and cried. But this is the rest of the story. It was his first season of Major League Baseball, 26 times at bat, one hit. After the last in that long string of demoralizing games, the team manager found him in the locker room, sitting in front of his locker, crying. The manager couldn't help feel partially responsible. The rookie had come up to the majors on his advice. In fact, the rookie, terrified at the thought of batting the big league at pitch, would have preferred to stay in Minneapolis with the American Association. There he could hit a comfortable 4.77. Now in the majors, he was batting 0.39. So when the manager found his new recruit sitting alone in the locker room in tears, he, the manager, knew what was wrong, but he asked anyway. And the rookie stood up at the sound of the manager's voice. He'd been caught in a very private moment. But the sympathy in the manager's eyes dispelled the young fellow's embarrassment, and he begged the manager, please, please send me back down. Quietly, the manager reaffirmed his faith in the rookie's potential. He was just nervous, that was all, and tomorrow was another day. The rookie appeared unconvinced, but as the manager searched his mind for something inspirational, something practical occurred to him instead. Tomorrow, the manager announced confidently, you're going to get two hits. The rookie struck a quizzical glance. The manager continued, when you're out there at the plate, pull up your pants. The rookie smiled and shook his head, but the manager was serious. If the rookie would just pull up his pants before he stepped up to bat, tomorrow he'd get two hits. He did, and he did. And the next day, the rookie pulled up his pants before walking to the plate, a single and a triple. They beat the Pirates 14-3. to And the day after that, against the Cardinals, the Greenhorn batter, who had once feared major league pitchers, got two doubles, scored the only run. They won one to nothing. The rookie was on his way, and he finished the season somewhat overcoming his rotten start with a decent 2-7-4. Drafted into the Army the following year, he returned to his team in 1954, and in the two elapsed years, he had not forgotten to pull up his pants. He batted 345 that year, scoring 119 runs, 110 RBIs, 41 home runs. He led his league in three base hits. He set a new team record for extra base hits, and his team won the pennant. Now, for this next, you must understand that a pitched ball must cross the plate above the batter's knees. And baseball, as most games, is a game of inches. What the team manager had discovered three years before was that the umpires were calling the young rookie's strike zone not at his knees, but at the knees of his pants. And with his pants pulled up, the low pitches were no longer good. And the once intimidated rookie became a superstar. You know his team, the New York Giants. You know his manager, Leo DeRocher. And now you know the rookie who had but to pull up his pants to lift himself into the stratosphere of baseball immortality. Willie Howard 
Mays, Willie Mays. And now you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story. Neither Eli nor Mortimer said a word as they drove past the city limits and out toward the dark woods outside town. And when they found a secluded spot, both of them got out of the car. Eli stared into Mortimer's eyes. He said, I don't want it to end this way, but I can't take care of you anymore. I can barely feed myself. Obvious as it ought to have been, now for the first time, Mortimer appeared to realize that something was terribly wrong. He looked around him and then up into the looming tree branches and then back into the face of the man who'd found him orphaned and hungry and then fed him and loved him. And both were quiet for a minute or two as the bittersweet memories chased after one another leading back to the day that they'd first met Eli the failing businessman and Mortimer the mouse. The mouse? The mouse. But this is the rest of the story. Advertising's a tough, competitive industry to begin with, especially if you're not cut out for it, and Eli had just about decided he was not cut out for it. Then one day, this stranger wandered into his shabby office, a little gray field mouse, who, with a boldness atypical of his kind, clambered up and onto the desk where Eli was working. Eli had been nursing a cheese sandwich most of the afternoon. He could spare a little, he supposed, so he pinched a tiny hunk of cheddar between his fingers, and he held it out. Come on, fella, he told the mouse. You gotta work for it. And what do you know? The tiny creature cautiously at first forward sniffed the air excitedly and then inch by inch courageously drew nearer the cheese until he was close enough to snatch it from Eli's grasp. The ant man laughed aloud. His little visitor was so tame. Might it have been somebody's pet? If not, he was now. And for each day thereafter, the mouse ventured forth from a crack in the wall, climbed up onto Eli's desk for a bite of cheese, became so trusting as time went on that he often curled up in the palm of Eli's hand and went to sleep. And then after a while, the mouse, whom Eli named Mortimer, would wake up and scamper away. For Eli, the hard times grew harder, so hard that his shirt sleeves were frayed and the soles of his shoes were flopping, so hard that he could no longer even afford the cheese sandwich that had sustained him until his supper of cold beans. And yet there, disheveled and discouraged and on the brink of bankruptcy, his first concern was for Mortimer. For there was a restaurant downstairs, a restaurant whose owner baited his mousetraps with the same cheese that Eli could no longer afford to share. And that's when Eli decided to take Mortimer out into the woods on the edge of town. I want you to be careful out there, he told the little fellow. And Mortimer was gone. But once upon a remarkable encounter in 1923, there was a commercial artist in Kansas City too soft-hearted for the aggressive world of advertising. But now whenever you reflect on the subsequent success of Eli, Walter Elias Disney, I hope you'll remember in your mind a tiny creature sleeping in his hand, whom Walt Disney one day would immortalize under the name his wife preferred, Mickey Mouse. Because now, after all, now you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story. He was our ambassador to France, and he had embarked on a quest for a machine. A machine. The degree of secrecy involved in his search is uncertain. We do know that he had learned that the machine was somewhere in Italy. We know that he had toured the country privately, unofficially, 
had made a 15-day expedition through the Piedmont, Lombardy, and Liguria regions for the express purpose of discovering the machine. We know that he, our United States ambassador to France now, had quietly, carefully recorded vast data on Italian culture. We know that he had literally risked his life by smuggling restricted substances from Italy across the Alps back into France. And still he had come up empty. He had failed to find the machine. So, the ambassador relayed instructions to his personal secretary and confidant, a man named William Short. The secretary, still in Italy, was by urgent request to continue the ambassador's investigation. Well, it was winter. At the suggestion of the informant, Secretary Short was traveling southward over the Appian Way. His destination, Naples. There, according to his source, he would discover the elusive machine. Stating that he was on a special mission for the United States government, he encountered little resistance. Well, weeks later, the ambassador received the communication for which he had hoped. From an armchair in Paris, he read that his secretary had located the machine it had been discovered in Naples, as expected. It was called by the Neapolitans a trophila. Though a smaller diameter than the ambassador had imagined, the device was still enormous. Quote, the depth of the mortar is about 20 or 24 inches. The width of the mortar that you desired to know is marked on the mold that you'll receive. It was left with my banker at Naples to be forwarded to you, end quote. And so, our ambassador to France procured the machine which he had sought and it was promptly shipped to the United States for the private use of the ambassador upon his return. Oh yes, I say his private use. In fact, there's no extant record to the effect that anyone in the United States knew what the ambassador was up to. But this is the rest of the story. When our ambassador to France returned from abroad, he had in his possession a machine like none other in the New World. For many years he used the device for the benefit of himself and family, and this in the decade before the dawn of the 19th century. You see, our ambassador to France, our foreign diplomat who so ardently involved himself in the culture of Italy, the man who made his quest to secure a certain mysterious machine, was to become in 1801 our third president, Thomas Jefferson. And the product which he introduced to America, the wonderful then anomalous delicacy that he brought to us, produce of the press of this mysterious machine, has since emerged into ubiquity. Spaghetti. Spaghetti. The Trophila was a spaghetti-making machine. And now you know the rest of the story. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Looking for a very warm and friendly church to attend? Come to Elkhart Bethel UMC at Michigan and Simonton Streets. Sunday Hymns Worship is at 9 a.m. followed by Cookie Fellowship and Sunday School. What are policemen made of? Don't credit me with the mongrel prose that I'm about to recite because it has many parents. It has thousands of parents. Policemen. 
A policeman is a composite of what all men are, I guess, a mingling of saint and sinner, dust and deity. Called statistics, wave the fan over stinkers, underscore instances of dishonesty and brutality because they are news. What that really means is that they are exceptional. They are unusual. They are not commonplace. Buried under the froth is the fact. And the fact is that less than one-half of one percent of policemen misfit that uniform. And that is a better average than you'd find among clergymen. What is a policeman? He of all men is at once the most needed and the most wanted. A strangely nameless creature who is sir to his face and pig or worse behind his back. He must be such a diplomat that he can settle differences between individuals so that each will think he won, but if a policeman is neat, he's conceited. If he's careless, he's a bum. If he's pleasant, he's a flirt. If he's not, he's a grouch. He must make instant decisions which would require months for a lawyer, but if he hurries, he's careless. If he's deliberate, he's lazy. He must be first to an accident, infallible with a diagnosis. He must be able to start breathing, stop bleeding, tie splints, and above all, be sure the victim goes home without a limp or expect to be sued. The police officer must know every gun, draw on the run, and hit where it doesn't hurt. He must be able to whip two men twice his size and half his age without damaging his uniform and without being brutal. If you hit him, he's a coward. If he hits you, he's a bully. A policeman must know everything and not tell. He must know where all of the sin is and not partake. The policeman from a single human hair must be able to describe the crime, the weapon, the criminal, and tell you where the criminal is hiding. But if he catches the criminal, he's lucky. If he doesn't, he's a dunce. If he gets promoted, he has political pull. If he doesn't, he's a dullard. The policeman must chase bum leads to a dead end, stake out ten nights to tag one witness who saw it happen but refuses to remember. He runs files and writes reports until his eyes ache to build a case against some felon who will get dealed out by a shameless Seamus or an honorable who isn't honorable. The policeman must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. Hello Americans, this is Paul Harvey. And this is a Saturday. And this has been a week when the media was talking about itself. Today, we're going to talk about you after page two. Hi, I'm Joanne Woodward. Ever notice how many things in life happen in a circle? The seasons, revolving credit, hula hoops, the spinning of the circle we call Earth, and recycling. Together we've already made a difference. Sorting glass, plastic, separating cans, stacking newspapers. Now there are lots of products made from things we've already recycled. A paperclip, in a more daring life, a 56 convertible. A cereal box, once your Sunday paper. It all goes back to the circle. It starts when we recycle trash at home and at work. It's completed when we buy products made from recycled materials. How do you know the difference? Check the label for something called post-consumer recycled content. Then buy the highest percentage of it you can find. 
you'll save a tree, you'll save energy, and in your own way, you'll help save the world. Complete the circle. For your free Buy Recycled Shopping Guide, call 1-800-2-RECYCLE. A message from the Ad Council and Environmental Defense. Finding the ways that work. Let's hopscotch among the headlines today. This one first, a new memory-enhancing pill at McGill. That Montreal University believes that it has under development the world's first memory pill. A memory-enhancing pill which proved might intercept Alzheimer's. At the same time, Vanderbilt Medical Center is rescuing heart attack victims by regenerating heart muscle with stem cell therapy using bone marrow. This makes three treatment centers in the United States now using the new stem cell modality. At the big auto show in London, the oohs and the ahs and the gasps of the onlookers were mostly for a car, a Volkswagen, driving in and out and around without a driver, without a driver. Innovative laser technology, software developed in Hamburg, Germany. This driverless car will compete with other driverless cars over a 60-mile course. Builders of the driverless car say that their technology is years ahead of the rivals. We're not doing nothing about cleaning up our sky. We United States of Americans are not doing nothing about pollution. Indeed, in the United States, the density and intensity of greenhouse gas emissions has been reduced by 7.5% in four years. Europe at the same time has reduced greenhouse gas intensity only 4.5%. We are working very hard to bring cleaner technology into the marketplace with incentives and mandates and partnerships. We Americans are decreasing greenhouse gas emissions twice as fast as they. The cicadas are coming, the cicadas are coming. Jillions of those pests will celebrate next month noisily exchanging vows in the dark in the park. They have been underground for 17 years. All at once, it will seem, they will tunnel through the dirt, make their way up the sides of trees, and begin their loud characteristic whirring, courting, searching out mates, laying eggs on tree branches before they die leaving it to their offspring to repeat the same cycle and reappear in 2024. Outdoor music festivals are already moving indoors so that they can be heard. In favor of the cicadas, let it be said that they don't bite and they don't carry diseases. And if your dog munches a few, it might even be good for him. Page 3. You suspect you have a hearing problem? Don't wait. I want you to consult a real expert. Call Audibel, A-U-D-I-B-E-L, today. You can reach your local professional at 1-866-AUDIBEL, A-U-D-I-B-E-L. There are thousands of certified Audibel hearing professionals in the United States, one near you. They have a product called Virtue. More than just a digital hearing aid, Virtue instruments are the first to incorporate nanotechnology. That means you get the kind of results that let you 
reconnect to your world and forget that you're wearing a hearing aid. The dispensers are committed individuals, people who care about your hearing, and their patients say they provide the very best customer service in the industry. You're busy. You have an active life. You don't want a hearing aid to slow you down. With Autobell, it won't, because no matter where you bought your Autobell originally, you can go to any one of a thousand Autobell offices for help. 1-866-AUDIBEL, A-U-D-I-B-E-L, or visit the website www.audibel.com. The phone number one more time is 1-866-AUDIBEL, A-U-D-I-B-E-L. The Smithsonian is seeking to catalog every living species of creature. They're already up to a million nine thousand, and they have a way to go. Disciples of Alternative Medicine will want to read this issue of Washington University's record. Page 3. There are three separate updates relating diet to Alzheimer's, to eye diseases, and to hearing loss. Something is going on in Glastonbury School in Connecticut. A schoolboy is leading other schoolboys astray. Peyton Tyroff says that recess is a waste of time. He's had enough of recess. He has bought himself an ukulele. He is playing and singing, row, row, row your boat, and I come from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Peyton Tyroff has an ukulele on his lap, and he's got the whole class doing it and he threatens to have the whole school doing it. Oh, here you are, scholars. Across England, the libraries of 50 schools have declined to accept any donation of books by Shakespeare or Dickens. They will accept no more books by Shakespeare or Dickens because, and this is a quote, because too many students would find them difficult to read. End quote. Asthma sufferers will want to know the symptoms of asthma and other nasal allergies. Sometimes respond to a Mediterranean diet. Grapes, oranges, apples, fresh tomatoes, nuts. A Mediterranean diet at least twice a day. Uh-oh, it gets better. In medical nutritional, a big boost today for soy foods. Listen to this. Dr. Walter Willett of Harvard, Dr. Alice Lichtenstein of Tufts, and the National Institute of Health and Nutrition in Japan all agree that soy protein lowers bad cholesterol 3 to 14 percent, helps prevent heart disease. The American Journal of Clinical Nutrition Summary says soy foods are the best foods you can put on your table. And the University of Chicago has surveyed 2,000 American physicians nationwide, and most physicians believe in God. Eighty-five percent of medical professionals say God can and does intervene. Homegrown Americans are moving out of metropolitan areas in the United States. Homegrown Americans are moving out of Battle Creek, Michigan, and Ames, Iowa, and Corvallis, Oregon, and New York City. Americans want out. And yet all of those places have more populations than a year ago because, the Census Bureau says, because immigrants are moving in. Immigrants are taking their places. Metro New York has added a million immigrants in the last five years. Atlanta added most population in the last five years, then Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston and Phoenix, 
and Riverside, California. They continued to sprawl and congest and pollute, however, because they're adding 36 million immigrants, about a third of whom are illegal. Recent immigration reforms are in favor of the immigrants. For every dollar they pay in taxes, for every dollar they pay in taxes, they will collect three dollars in government benefits, Medicaid, food stamps, public housing, page four. Hello? Uh, awful night. Beth? My erosive acid reflux. Haven't you heard of Protonics, Pantoprazole sodium? What? Protonics. One daily tablet helped control daytime, even nighttime acid reflux symptoms. Nighttime symptoms too? Yep, even helped repair acid reflux damage. Plus, I save on my Protonics prescription. Think I could save on my copay? Check your health plan. Right. Gotta go. Where? To see my doctor about Protonics. Protonics copays are not less than generic drugs. Prescription Protonics heals acid-related erosions in the esophagus and relieves associated frequent and persistent heartburn. Most patients heal within eight weeks. Your results may vary. Doctors may prescribe Protonics longer to maintain healing. Studies lasted 12 months. Other serious stomach conditions may still exist. In studies, the most common side effects were headache, diarrhea, and gas. Go to ProtonicSavings.com or call 866-794-ACID to learn more about Protonics, acid reflux disease, and savings. See our ad in the Saturday Evening Post. Ask your doctor if Protonics is right for you. Our nation's exploration of space is probably our nation's least expensive extravagance. Most all of the dollars which build and supply our space vehicles are recirculated in places like Seattle and Wichita and Texas and Connecticut and California, just the fallout from our space exploration results in improved valuable tools and technologies and things which pay for themselves many, many times over, which reminds me that it's time for Paul Harvey to update his audit on all of our pennies from heaven. Right now, an unwinnable war is consuming our seed corn, while Russia, with lesser reserves, is busy exploring opportunities in space. Russia, right now, is anticipating industrialization and colonization of the moon. The Space Adventures Travel Agency, right now, is allied with Russia in arranging five tourist space flights, which will include a trip around the moon and may include a landing of people on the moon, each of whom paid his own way. Forbes magazine keeps score. The richest man in the world is still Bill Gates. Number two is now Carlos Helu, owns Mexican Telecom, worth $53 billion. America's wealthy people are the most generous in the world. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have sent the largest share of their accumulated fortunes to help the hungry and the sick people in Africa. What motivates so many American Robin Hoods, eager to take money back from the rich and give it to the poor? Well, James Fowler, University of California, says there is a Robin Hood impulse in some people. Robin Hood, of course, was a folk legend in old England who took from the rich and gave to the poor. More recent studies confirm that the impulse, the egalitarian impulse, reveals a taste of equality in all of us, a taste for equality. Controlled studies at the University of California revealed that 70% of participating students 
are like the are like the legendary Princess Papuli of Hawaii, who had so much papaya she just loved to give it away. But this study affirmed that participants tended to spend their own money and to share it with others with a collective effect of equalizing income. Now, page 5. Hey, according to a recent study by researchers at the University of Washington, almost two billion of us have had our records stolen with personal information on those records. That's like saying that the personal information, social security, credit card numbers, medical histories, benefits, PIN numbers, you name it, have been stolen from everybody in the United States times nine. The odds are that your identity has already been stolen. may not have been used yet, but it may be in the hands of a thief. L-I-F-E-L-O-C-K, the only company in the world that has been independently proved to stop identity theft. And it costs only ten dollars a month. Guaranteed. We all need it. And you get LifeLock. Get it now by going to LifeLock.com or telephone 1-877-LIFELOCK. For what it's worth, did you hear about the long-locked safe in Monroe, Connecticut? A 450-pound old safe in the Monroe Historical Society has finally been opened. The opening cost more than the safe cost. And inside the safe, mostly old newspaper clippings from the 1930s and a poem by Anonymous. And what else? Inside the safe? The combination. Paul Harvey. Good day. Down Home with Paul is a production of New Source, One Michener. Stories and more are found at the Paul Harvey Story Archives page on YouTube. Until next week, good day.